Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today we're discussing The Social Dilemma, the popular Netflix documentary that examines the damaging influence of social media companies. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked, is being measured. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. Exactly what image you stop and look at, for how long you look at it. Oh yeah, seriously, for how long you look at it. They know when people are lonely, they know when people are depressed, they know when people are looking at photos of your ex-romantic partners, they know what you're doing late at night, they know the entire thing. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, or what kind of neuroses you have, what your personality type is like. They have more information about us than has ever been imagined in human history. It is unprecedented. The film isn't presented like your typical documentary. There's a meta-narrative featuring a teenager who becomes addicted to social media and an artificial intelligence behind the scenes pushing him down the rabbit hole. Joining me on the pod today to discuss the doc is Ramona Pringle, tech expert and associate professor in the RTA School of Media and director of the Creative Innovation Studio at Ryerson University. At a certain point, they talk about algorithms are opinions that are embedded in code. And that's a really strong line. And again, this is where I, I think it's a, it's a great thing that this doc exists. You know, I think so often when we hear about algorithms, we think it's, you know, it's math, that it's objective. But no, it is opinion. Someone has written that code. Someone has made decisions. Things need to be trained, right? So there are opinions that are baked into all of that. Ramona and I discuss what the doc has to say about social media's power over us, how misinformation spreads, and why regulation over the tech industry is badly needed. Stay with us. Uh, Well, Ramona Pringle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Longtime listener. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we actually go back a a while, a long ways, because I think I produced you on the agenda about seven years ago for Avatar Secrets. Yeah, 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 for sure. I know we've had a few conversations throughout the years and, and related to this as well. That's true. I was actually going to, uh, before we get to the film, I wondered if uh, you remember your first, what your first social media platform was. I feel like maybe Friendster, but I don't think I really used it. I think I just kind of had Whoa. it. I was not on MySpace. Um, and I do remember early days of, so here's something that's really interesting. This is not exactly your answer, but um, Facebook came about right at the end of my time in university. And... Um, the iPhone came out while I was in grad school. And when I teach, you know, I, I teach media and interaction design and, you know, digital platforms and in, talk about innovation in the creative industries. And it's one of the, th- I, I, I bring up those stories so often in that, you know, the, the world, the, the world for creators, really the world for all of us changed when Facebook came about, changed when the iPhone came about. And that means that the world changed in the time that I was in undergrad and in the time that I was in grad school. And I so often will say to students, like more than any particular skill, you need to learn how to be agile and how to adapt because the world is inevitably going to fundamentally change 
in the time that you're in school right now. So mm-hmm. whatever vision of the world that you had coming into this program, you know, it's going to be a different space when you graduate. And we don't necessarily see that other than in in hindsight. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that just goes back to me remembering my early Facebook interactions. I remember just using it with a friend of mine who I went to school with. We went down to see City Line. <laughs> I remember her posting on my wall being like, well, we're going to, this is like the first post on my wall. We're going to go to City Line today. And we were both just trying to understand like why we would use this. It just felt so redundant. It felt like another way of saying what we were doing, but uh, right. oh, how times change. Well, let's talk a bit about the, the doc, yeah. the social dilemma. What, what, so what were your first impressions of it? Gosh, it's it's tricky. Um, and, you know, I've read so many hot takes on this as well. Um, I, I, I think that I've got mixed views on it. On one hand, I think it's done a very good job of getting people to pay attention uh, that may not have otherwise paid attention. I think for me, you know, I think about all this stuff day in and day out. It's in my work. I write, I do columns every week on these kinds of issues. But I think there's a lot of people for whom a film like this is really an aha moment and feels like, wow, maybe we should be paying attention. Uh, at the same time, I think that there you know, were parts of it that were quite heavy handed. I thought some of the, you know, the reenactments were <laughs> maybe a little cheesy. I think that the three guys in the control room making decisions uh, you know, the, these lookalikes. I kept trying to figure out, like, are these twins? Have they used the same actor? Like, Do you know who that is? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, it's Pete. Well, the, the Vincent Carthar- Carthaser, I think is his last name. But it's uh, Pete Campbell from Mad Men. Okay. I don't know if you watch that show, but I was like, hey, it's Pete. <laughs> oh, so it is one guy. It is it's one, one guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, there, were some, there were some question marks for, for me around that as well. Uh, one of the things that I felt throughout, like, if I had a criticism about it, is that... Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of moments in it where it just felt very not self-aware. And I can get into what I mean by that a a little bit more. But, um, you know, I do think that a lot of the issues that were raised are the right issues. Um, But I also think, you know, a lot of the longtime criticism of the tech industry is, you know, the white dude bros of Silicon Valley. And here you've Mm. got them all, you know, it's just it's just them again. There was a few other voices that were in there, but really, you know, it's been other people, um, you know, certainly more diverse voices and diverse voices from other industries, academics, journalists have been flagging these issues for a long time. And so in some ways, I think one of my criticisms would be that this was presented as if it was this secret that these people who were developers who had left these companies um, were letting the public in on, whereas, you know, they're not really new relevations. Uh, I've heard it, you know, referred to as an apology tour. And, you know, I think that there's something to that. Uh, These guys have made their millions. They're pretty comfortable. (laughs) And now they can now they can try and clear their conscience. But they're sort of almost like framed like they're whistleblowers. But yeah, they're they're all kind of like pretty successful like they've yeah, all moved the whistleblowing to- yeah the whistleblowing happened a while ago you know part of me that's part of me was looking for that kind of whistleblower like part of me was wondering where is our instead of these reenactments into people's houses where is our lens inside of the uh the conference rooms where these decisions are being made back then right and there was a little bit of that you know the three guys um 
you know, at one point the, 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 in the control room, he goes, do you ever wonder if the feed is good for Ben? Right. Like, it's like, as if the, as if the machine itself has that conscious moment and they say, oh no, and don't worry about it. But, you know, <laughs> I, you know, what about the develop? I, I think in that way, it kind of, it took the onus off the humans and puts it onto the AI in a sense, as if the machine is supposed to be having that conscientious moment. And sort of where was the glimpse into the decision-making that was being made? And they, they talk about it a little bit. They talk about how they thought they were spreading joy and they thought they were doing this all for good. Uh, but they do give... Um, they give like little hints that there were questions at the time around whether this was good or not for us. But I, I, that's something that I would have missed in kind of docu- that I missed as documentary is truly that whistleblower, uh, kind of that whistleblower content from five years ago or seven years ago mm-hmm. because it was happening. So there's a little bit to this that feels like it's the mass media apology tour when, you know, a lot of this criticism has been, has been, uh, really out in the public for quite some time. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Well, you, you mentioned uh, missing self-awareness, and I wasn't. I, w- I wonder if you meant like, because this is uh, being shown on Netflix, and Netflix is a, a tech giant, and it doesn't really, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not uh, criticized like uh, Google and Facebook is, and um, maybe that's because it's not, Netflix isn't a social media company, but it is one of these big tech giants. Uh, and, you know, they do use people's data to kind of like program, you know, things that they may like and kind of keep them uh, affixed to their screen. So I thought I don't know if that's what you meant by self-awareness, but that's what, something that jumped out at me. That's really interesting that you bring up. Yeah. I mean, Netflix has next Netflix has got a vested interest in, uh, you know, uh, revealing the issue, but not in a way that makes them complicit in any kind of way. And not only is it that they um, use data to lure us in and, and they're, they're not transparent at all, right? Like it's mm-hmm. very hard to get num- any kind of numbers or st- st- statistics around who consumes what on Netflix. They've just started to show top 10, but still like there's not a lot of transparency about what that actually means and how it's being generated. But, you know, apropos this show and the audience and, and dealing with documentaries, Big tech there is just their immense power and the fact that, you know, they take over IP. And so you end up basically, if you're working for Netflix, making a documentary, you become a producer for hire as opposed to, you know, selling your show um, and being able to take some of that profit to maybe put towards your next project. So they do operate in the mechanism of big tech. They're part of this. But no, there isn't anyone who, there was no one in the doc whose background had been working at Netflix. They had been at Pinterest and Twitter and Facebook and all the other platforms, which is, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, uh, the competition. What do I, I mean <laughs> about the, the self-aware piece? I feel like the self-aware to me was like so much of the content uh, felt like it just perpetuated a lot of the issues that might in fact um, be to blame, you know, that all the, and maybe it was purposeful, you know, the fact that all the guys looked alike, that, you know, we were sort of, that there wasn't outside voices, that, you know, you didn't get uh, a more diverse take, that it wasn't bringing in the true whistleblowers, the, the researchers who have been digging at these issues for a long time that, you know, one of the criticisms has been if there was more diversity among some of these teams, maybe some of these issues would have been flagged, right? Maybe when you've just got all the uh, white Stanford 
dude tech bros on a team, they've got a lot of blind spots and that leads to a lot of these issues as well. And so just the way that it was presented felt like it perpetuated a lot of that. Um, and I guess that's what I meant by, by sort of being, um, not self-aware. Yeah. Like they talk about algorithms being, um, here, here's, here's a line, right? I, I ended up jotting this down, actually. At a certain point, they talk about algorithms are opinions that are embedded in code. And that's a really strong line. And again, this is where I, I think it's a, it's a great thing that this doc exists, um, is that, you know, that's a profound line that I think is really important for people to hear if they haven't heard it before, that these are not, you know, I think so often when we hear about algorithms, we think it's, you know, it's math, that it's objective, but no, it is opinion. Someone has, someone has written you know, someone has written that code, someone has made decisions, things need to be trained, right? So there are opinions that are baked into all of that. The not self-aware piece of it is it was their opinions, right? So they're all talking about this, but no, you're the ones who are making all of these decisions. And I think there is a bit of acknowledgement of that for sure. And Um, you think if they had hired, you know, say more women or people of color, they would have uh, been able to catch some of those uh, problems early on? I think so. You know, granted, you know, this is, it is the wild west, but there, there, there's not been a ton of attention paid to, um, you know, how could this go wrong? How could this be misused? Um, and, and it is one of the things that I think is addressed in the film is it was, how can we make money off of this? It was really a product, but when people become the product, extra attention needs to be paid to ethics. And this is another piece in the film that I think is a major blind spot is, um, you know, they, they talk about collective will as the way out. Collective will puts the onus entirely on users. Like, put down your phone. Uh, you know, if you don't like Facebook, stop using Facebook, as opposed to any of the onus being on these companies to change the way that they do things, or regulation, right? Having rules that keep people safe. And rules exist everywhere. I mean, our, our cars, the airbags and, and the seatbelts are all there because of regulation. And people bemoaned <laughs> that they would have to wear seatbelts when seatbelts first came about. All of these things, whether it's food safety across industries, everything that we use and everything that we engage with in our lives has some kind of regulatory oversight except for this industry. And so that's another piece in there that I think um, is a slight miss is just uh, this notion that collective will is the way out. And my problem with that is, again, I think it puts the onus too much on users and not on the people who are making billions and billions of dollars in the process. I, I can I, I can relate to that, you know, the, the onus being on the user part, because like I've personally tried so hard to like um, divorce myself from my phone and from social media apps. Like I've I bought a flip phone like a couple years ago. Oh, and good for you. <laughs> I was just going to go like whenever I went out, I would just go with that. And I was using it for a while, but then I realized, you know, I, I want to listen to podcasts still. So I need, I need something for that. So I bought an, a little iPod and, uh, it's, it's not, it's like old, so it doesn't have like the double speed feature, which I like, cause I can get through more podcasts that way. Yeah. And so I was like, well, crap, this sucks. So like, well, I guess I might as well keep using my smartphone. And, and, and it's like, I, I, it's like the, you know, the, the scene in Godfather three where Michael Corleone is like. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. That's what it feels like with smartphones. Like you just yeah. can't 
get rid of it. Like it's just, it's so you, you it's like there's certain things you just you, you take for granted, like GPS. Like it, it's just like, well, where am I? Oh, here's my, my map. I can just, you know, look it up. Here's where I am. Here's where I need to go. Like there's so many things that we kind of need it for. Um, it's almost impossible to just like get rid of it completely, right? Exactly. And and there's such interesting research about this. I mean, there's research that shows that if our even if our phones are um, face down on the desk and on silent, they still distract us, right? Because we are expecting uh, that 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 notification, that pull, even if it's in your purse, even if it's in the car, it's still distracting. And they do talk about that, you know, um, they talk about that in the film that, you know, it's this, it's the same kind of design principles that are used in casinos. It's very Pavlovian, right? It is, uh, you know, you know, the, the Pavlov, uh, exercise was ring the bell, give the dog food. The dogs start salivating every time they hear the, the, the bell. They don't even need the food anymore because they just get trained. That bell means food. And then you, you know, mix that with, I'm going back to, it's, it's, a, I'm going to just <laughs> timestamp this and say it's Friday morning after a very, very long week. And I'm going back to my like first year psych and all of this, but <laughs> yeah. uh, then you, then you mix in like a, what's it called? Random scheduled reinforcement where, you know, you're not, oh, you don't know when you're going to get a reward. And that just makes um, that behavior that much more sticky, right? And mm-hmm. so I think you translate that to our apps, to notifications, to emails. And this is something that they do lift the curtain on a bit in the documentary, which I think is good. Um, but, uh, you know, once in, what, 10 months, a year, you might get an email from someone saying like, oh, I love you so much. I miss you. It was such a mistake that we broke up. Or I have a new job for you and it's really exciting and you're going to be that much more fulfilled and you'll make $10,000 a year more than you currently make or $50,000 a year more than you currently make. Wouldn't that be amazing? Granted, most of the time, I mean, if your email is anything like my email, uh, most of the time it's like, oh, Old Navy is 30% off uh, or, it's a me- <laughs> or it's a meeting request, right? Like a, just yeah, a yeah, calendar yeah. invite. But we still check it compulsively because of all of those psychological factors, those design factors. And that's true, not just of our email, but certainly of all of these social platforms where they are profiting off of the amount of time that we spend on those platforms, our attention, our clicks, and how that how that translates into something that they can then sell to marketers. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself doing this, but I have actually been a couple times now, uh, I've actually bought something that I saw in an ad, like on Instagram or something like that. Like I, oh I actually, I followed, yeah. like I clicked on the thing. I'm like, oh, that looks really cool. I want that. And I was like, yep. what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, no, I do it. I do it too. And, and this is where, you know, it's not all, it, it's not all bad. Like, I think there is something to be said for customized ads <laughs> and yeah. the fact that, you know, you're seeing, I would rather see ads for, you know, sweatsuits I really like. Beginning of the pandemic, I, like everyone else on earth, decided that I would never wear my regular wardrobe ever again. And I would only wear sweatsuits. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at first they weren't being advertised to me. Now it's all I see. It's <laughs> now all I see is matching sweatsuits. Uh, but, you know, I'd rather see that than ads for cars. I don't need a car or ads for vacations. I'm not going on a vacation anytime soon. So there is something about personalized ads and personalized content that works for us. It's just, um, you know, if it was 
my argument is I, I, I think we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like innovation is not a bad thing. And, and these kind of customized features, and I will tell you a story about ordering things online because yes, I order a lot of things online. <laughs> I don't know the last time I shopped in a store, to be honest, but, um, I, I think there's a lot of good that comes from these platforms. I think there's a lot of, I think the ways that we can connect, I think for a lot of people, you know, this is their social life. It's the way that they engage with each other. It's the way that they socialize. But the problem is when it's, it's not, they're not up front with us about the mechanisms of how it works and when it's bad for us, but there's no repercussions, you know, there's no, uh, there's no consequences. That was something that, you know, was really screaming at me throughout this film is like, where are the consequences? Why aren't they talking about consequences? Why aren't they talking about regulation? And mm -hmm. it's, it's such a big issue. You know, antitrust is an issue that keeps coming up around these big tech companies because they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the whole notion of antitrust is competitiveness, right? If Facebook also owns Instagram and also owns all these different platforms, when TikTok, you know, TikTok just recently, it's been in the news because they, because of Trump, needed to be looking for, uh, you know, a, a, a U.S. buyer or a non-China owner. Um, but what happens if Microsoft owns TikTok? Like, does that breach antitrust laws? Well, those laws aren't in place when it comes to the tech world. And so I don't really think that I've got a problem with getting ads for you know, cute toddler clothes for my daughter. That's what I was going to say. That's the story. I'll take a moment and jump back. The first purchase I ever made based on targeted content was uh, ordering some really, really cute baby stuff for my daughter when she was very, very young. And I got the, it had auto-filled with a postal code for the Yukon. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I'm never getting this. And so I tried to call them. The phone number just went to uh, an answering machine and I tried to email them and it bounced back and I was like, well, there you go. $100 I'm never seeing again. But sure enough, like six weeks later, it all showed up at my doorstep. So <laughs> it actually ended <laughs> up being a positive experience. I really liked everything that was there. Uh, but I, I think my point there is um, uh, to me, you know, the personalized ads is, is looking at the wrong thing because there are conveniences. Just like you say, the GPS on our phones, there's a lot of these features that um, that are helpful, that do add to quality of life. You know, a lot of technology, a lot of digital media is aspirational. I think that's a really great way to talk about it in that they give us superpowers. They let us do, do things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. They, they, they give us efficiencies, but you know, along the way, some of those ideals have been corrupted, right? When we first got our smartphones and our digital calendars, the idea was like, okay, well, you'll be freed up to do all these other things because, you know, the automated parts of it are going to help you with the grunt work. But it's almost like instead of our machines adapting to human time, we adapted to machine time. And machines, right, like they're machines. They're not natural. They don't have to adhere to seasons or sleep patterns or night and day circadian rhythm. Uh, and we start to lose that when, you know, the blue light from the screen keeps us up at all hours. So I, I think the concern is just uh, – you know, where experience and intention don't match up and where they don't match up often uh, because of manipulative intentions really being driven by profit and bottom line. And it's gotten more and more corrupted over the years where we see how, you know, a tool like Facebook can be used in, in really, really detrimental ways to, uh, to society. And those algorithms do get more and more and more powerful. I mean, uh, 
but but ultimately it comes down to there's still human decision makers. I mean, just to jump over recently, you know, we're, we're in the midst of this pandemic, which means all of us are just spending more time on our computers and more time in front of screens and more time with these platforms. At the beginning of the pandemic, YouTube had to um, – they like furloughed a bunch of their moderators, human moderators, and and turned to algorithms a bit more. And we've seen this happen a number of times, but the algorithms, do they just don't have an understanding of context that humans have. And so in this case, they actually ended up uh, over flagging content, right? They were removing or banning content that actually didn't uh, break their, wasn't like that was fine according to their their guidelines. It, it adhered to their guidelines or, or terms of service, code of contact, conduct. Uh, and so they brought back, they recently, like in the last few weeks, brought back in more human moderators because humans just have that ability to sense, to, to understand minutia and understand context in a way that machines don't. But then you look at something, you know, like another very, very uh, concerning issue right now, I think, is the rise of QAnon as like, what do you call it? A community, a movement and <laughs> <Religion>. platforms, <laughs> religion. Yeah. And on one hand, platforms, you know, platforms like Twitter have taken a stance to push QAnon off their platforms. But the fact that there's no regulation means that when these companies take a stand in any of these, you know, change their policies. It's very, very self-congratulatory. It's like, look mm -hmm. at us as heroes, which I think brings me back to this film, right? Like these guys are being presented as the kind of heroes who are stepping forward as opposed to um, the repercussions of, of, of doing things that have had, uh, have maybe led to harm. Well, yeah, let's talk a bit about regulation because I think, yeah, that would be, um, th th that's something that I guess, the I don't know, like, the film doesn't really give, like in terms of, I guess, providing solution, you know, it gives sort of individual things that people can do. Like there's, you know, the, the, all the interview subjects sort of give suggestions on ways they can cut back their social media. I actually turned off a bunch of my notifications after I finished watching the film. But like, I mean, what is it, what would you like to see, I guess, done in terms of uh, reining in these, these tech companies? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and, you know, there's been these, uh, like helpful hints. In fact, um, Tristan, what's his last name? There's, there's, you know, there's... Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, over the years, he's, he's shared some really um, interesting insights over the years. Um, Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris, that's right. Thank you. My memory. I don't know whether it's like pandemic life and just exhaustion <laughs> or the fact that I've gotten almost three-year-old or the combination of the two, but <laughs> my <laughs> memory... A, he, was like, he was with Google. Yeah, yeah, but has really worked on ethics and design for quite a long time and has done some really interesting work over the years, but there was some stuff a little... There was some um, research a few years ago, even about the colors that are used on apps, and so there was a, a movement where everyone was um, pushed to do grayscale mode right? And that you wouldn't be so drawn to your phone if your phone was gray all the time. But sort of like you were saying, that leads us to the problem of, well, we all got rid of our cameras <laughs> because our <laughs> phones have such great cameras and we don't want, if this, is, if this is not just the way that we're engaging on social media, but it's also what we're using as our primary camera, we don't want it to be in grayscale mode all the time. And so, you know, you, know, you kind of end up undoing grayscale mode Maybe it was helpful in in breaking the the kind of addictive bond or addictive allure of the the social media apps and the buttons and the color that's there, but it also breaks all these other things because our phones have become these centralized devices, um, just like turning off notifications, right? Like there's always these little things that individuals can do, but I don't think that substantial change comes around from the little things that individuals do. 
except individuals perhaps pushing government for more regulation, right? Like, it, would change come about in terms of cigarette smoking or in terms of, uh, you know, how safe our cars were and the need for airbags and the need for seatbelts if it was just like individual hacks. Like here, when you get into your car, tie this piece of string across your lap. It shouldn't be up to the individual to make sure they're safe. It should be up to the person who is selling a $30,000 vehicle to make sure you're safe. And I think it's exactly the same case here is that there's just no one who's holding them accountable except for themselves. We see this with kids programming on YouTube kids, right? Like YouTube kids will say like, oh, you know, there's no fast, you know, we don't have any ads for fast food on YouTube kids. And then you've got a sponsored channel by a fast food brand or something like that, where you've got an Oreo cookie that is the character in a show. And so maybe there's no ads, but it seeps in in other places. So it ends up being very, very self-congratulatory. But certainly if you're growing up on YouTube kids, it's a very different experience than if you were growing up with TVO kids. Yeah, ain't that the truth? There's a plug for TVO kids. <laughs> <laughs> Pokeru all the way. Um, well, I mean, do you see any regulation sort of happening? And I, I don't know about the states, but in Canada or, or Europe, is is are, are efforts underway to kind of um, rein in uh, social media companies? Yeah, efforts are absolutely underway. I mean, these discussions are discussions that are ongoing and ongoing. Yes, in Europe, they're ongoing here. Um, it's a long road, um, but I think uh, it's kind of the unsexiest thing to talk about when it comes to social media is just to say like, well, there should be rules, there should be policy, policies in place. Um, and, you know, the way that these things get implemented can often be at a glacial pace uh, and hard to do. And, and I think that this is, again, part of the need for some of those antitrust laws is that the bigger these companies get, the harder it is to regulate them. I mean, you look at a company like Amazon, which doesn't really feature in this doc. Uh, Amazon and Facebook, when it comes to either the sheer number of people who use them or the amount of money that they're worth, they are larger with deeper pockets than countries around the world. And so, you know, how does a country rein in a corporate beast that is bigger and wealthier than it is, right? And so yeah. if it goes, if it becomes a legal battle, right? Like these are really, really tricky issues. And that's why I think time is of the essence with a lot of them as well. Uh, and it's just, I think it's also just, um, you know, there's a little bit of catch up on the part of government when it comes to regulation, because sort of like this film, right? We're a decade into all of this stuff and this film has come out. And I think in terms of the mainstream, it's a bit of an aha moment. I mean, it's fascinating to see that this film has been, I think the number one, it's certainly been in the top 10, but I think it's even been the number one viewed Netflix show, which is really interesting. I don't know. I don't know if you have better statistics than me, but I think I was reading that it might actually be the, the first time that there's been a documentary film that was the number one viewed content, the top viewed content on Netflix. And that is very, very interesting. It means that it's hitting a nerve, touching a nerve, and that people are watching it and that they're listening and that it will affect behavior. I mean, to me, hearing that you changed your behavior after watching it, that's why, you know, there's parts of me that don't want to criticize it because I think it's doing a lot of good. But um, ultimately, to put the onus back on individuals so that people feel like, okay, the solve for this is for me to turn off notifications when in fact... It's the the issue. This it's all that much more insidious, right? Like this has yeah. got to be solved at a level um, that goes beyond you choosing not to log in or open that screen that day, and more 
we can't stop the march of time, right? We can't stop yeah. progress. Progress is going to happen. We're not going to stop using GPS. We're not going to stop using paper maps anytime soon, unless you're going on like a luxury off the grid camping experience. And, you know, you want that, <laughs> that map, uh, sort of a wayfinding experience. And, you know, there are more and more of those like digital detox experiences, but this is, you know, we, we don't stop the march of time. Progress moves in one direction, but progress also shouldn't mean, you know, this is, I think this is one of the things that we're seeing and they do touch on this in the film is progress hitting at like, uh, uh, batting heads, knocking heads, whatever it's called, knocking horns with, uh, with anti-progress, with, with the collapse of society in many, many ways. And who's responsible for that? Well, the companies are responsible for that. And who's going to hold them accountable? On one hand, I do think that there is that argument that says, like, if there's a mass protest, if there was a global walkout, that our voices would be heard. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm a broken record on this, but I just I think it does. <laughs> it doesn't come back down to the individual. You know, if an individual is hooked on smoking, is it up to them to break down big tobacco? Right. You know, like it's hard it's hard to quit when someone's addicted to something. And yeah. so where where does the intervention come in and who's ultimately responsible? I guess the one question or criticism I had of it was um, you know, there's a lot of talk in the film about misinformation and uh, conspiracy theories that get spread in, in, uh, on Facebook and other places, Twitter, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, obviously that is real and that is a, a problem, but I guess I sort of wonder to what extent, uh, you can blame the companies for that and not just the fact that maybe there were divisions already in society that maybe social media was sort of just bringing to the surface. And to what extent was it, is it something that, uh, you know, is a problem in all countries. Cause I don't think every country has the same, um, level of, I guess, uh, uh polarization that, you know, we're seeing in maybe in the U S and other, um, places where, you know, Facebook has like, like I'm thinking of, um, the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, where I think, you know, there's a good case to be made that Facebook really did, um, uh, have a, have a role to play in, I guess, in sparking that crisis. But I don't know in Canada, I'm not so sure if it's, uh, as polarized, uh, and I and, I'm, and I guess I just I, I wondered a little bit about that um, that part of the film a bit. So yeah, you raise a lot of really interesting points. My view of technology has always been, um, in some ways, that it's a mirror of us, right, and that we are good and bad and everything in between, and so we will see all of that in the technologies that we use. It does amplify all of that, though. And mm -hmm. there is no doubt in my mind that these platforms are amplifying the spread of misinformation. So I think you're right. I think these divisions predated. I think that like my sort of personal view in where we find ourselves in the world right now is that this has been a long time coming. But, you know, maybe we've reached this point of escalation faster than we would have without these tools because of that amplifying factor. And they talk about, I think that they touch on the notion that technology advances at an exponential rate, right? So it's not like two, then four, then six, then eight, like every year it doubles on itself and its sophistication doubles on, upon itself, which means in terms of amplification, if there are chasms in society, if there's splits or rifts among us, it's going to amplify all of that as well. And, you know, if people... If they're, uh, you know, if they're profiting based on engagement and they give people what they want to believe and what they want to see and what they want to see is misinformation because misinformation adheres to their worldviews and what they want to believe about the world, 
and then they get really passionate and they get really angry. I mean, there's been some interesting studies around virality and what people share. And people share content that has an element of surprise and then some other very strong emotion. Going way back, you know, like this go these these kind of studies go way back to like early YouTube. What was it called? Like Tommy bit my finger. Do you know that video where there's two toddlers <laughs> sitting in the back seat? <laughs> yes. And you know, there's that element of like <gasps> And then Charlie. I think, yeah, Charlie bit my finger. That's right. Yeah. Good memory. I told you my memory was bad. <laughs> um, like really soft around the edges. <laughs> um, but you can see how you can see how that dynamic is at play with the information that we share as well. It's like it it, it peaks our interest. It has that kind of uh, surprise element, and then that other strong, you know, can you believe they're doing this? Or this is so tragic? Or you know, it's it's you know, you, you can see those, um, you can see those patterns in the content that we spread and, and they're profiting off of this. So I think in terms of the amplification of those chasms and the spread of misinformation and how much more misinformation there is, I mean, there's cases of basically digital content farms that create misinformation for profit. And that I think clearly points to the role that these platforms play because I don't think in the past people would have been profiting off of misinformation without these platforms there in the first place. So I think both of those things are true. Um, I think that, you know, we would have been in this place regardless, but maybe we would have been in this place in like 50 years or 200 years um, as opposed to everything just being so concentrated and so amplified. And the other thing that I would say is I like, I think it really is quite concerning um, even here in Canada, you know, whether it's around COVID and, you know, people believing that it's a hoax or thoughts around wearing a mask, right? Like that, those, um, those bubbles of, of beliefs, um, you know, really do get perpetuated by the spread of misinformation on these platforms. It's a, it's a place to, you know, congregate. It's someone to, to believe in. It's someone to follow. Uh, and whether it's something related to COVID, whether it's the spread, I mean, the, the spread of online extremism and sort of right-wing extremism, uh, neo-Nazism is, is really on the rise in Canada right now as well. And that's because of online factions. So yes, I think both things are true. I think that it probably would have headed in this, headed in this direction regardless. Um, but not to be a broken record, but unregulated, you know, letting these, let, you know, when these companies continue, if, if Facebook is going to, you know, recommend content that adheres to someone's views or recommend content that, you know, is, uh, is non-scientific, I don't know, what's the term for it, but, you know, a, a sort of non-scientifically proven quote unquote cure for coronavirus, this kind of honey or this kind of other thing, like they are, it's, it's not neutral. It's not net neutral on their back end. They're profiting off of all of these engagements and interactions, which in turn are very damaging in our offline lives. And so I do think that there is um, definitely a role in terms of the spread of misinformation and the amplification of so many of the ne negative forces that we see. Uh, but it's not like it's, I, I guess, if I'm going to take a step back, and kind of think through this again a little bit, um, I think the thing to be really conscious of is it's not the social media platforms, right? It's not the algorithms that have done this. It's humans making all of these decisions. It's puppet masters. It's puppeteers. And not in the way, you know, in the film they show the 
the madman guy. It's not Pete. It's not Pete Campbell. It's not him, right? Like, there's not people who are controlling our decisions like that. They're not puppeteering us in that way. But I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we always look for, and this I think goes back to your, to the point that you were making maybe is we look for a scapegoat, right? It's much right. easier to say technology is to blame for the demise of society than it is to say that it feeds into human tendencies, human urges, the human desire to point a figure, to, to be, you know, we're very tribal and social media has fed into that in a new way where we are, you know, we're, we're seeing a new kind of tribalism that I think is, is, is not something that we've seen in the past few decades. And so it does feed into something that's very, very human, but it's that amplifying factor. And it's the fact that at its core, it's all human, right? On one hand, it's playing into human urges, human desires, human tendencies. On the other hand, it's humans that are designing these systems, playing puppeteer. It's just the machines in the middle that amplify everything and make it that much more powerful and spread that much more quickly, right? Well said. Thanks, Ramona. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. It's great speaking with you. Yeah, it was great speaking with you. And that's the podcast. The Social Dilemma is available on Netflix. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs at tvo.org and you can follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hollowell, and series producer Katie O'Connor. The executive producer for digital is Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.